The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to be here this morning and, and just uh, and get to continue uh, going through these letters uh, of our Lord to the churches in Revelation. I hope it's been, I hope it's been encouraging to you so far, um, and and um, and and uh, that it will be uh, as we move forward. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at his letter to the church in Pergamum. It's the third church that he writes to, and you'll find that in Revelation chapter two, um, verses twelve through seventeen. So we're going to go ahead and read that together. This is what he says to the church in Pergamum, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and mighty God, we come before you and we ask your blessing on your word. We ask, Lord, that you will uh, reach down and by your spirit soften our hearts, open our eyes and ears to your incredible, life-giving, penetrating word. We ask, Lord, that in doing so, you will grow us in your grace, that you will strengthen our faith in you, alone. Father, thank you for preserving this letter. Teach us by it this morning. May may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so uh, many of you know, uh, a lot of you know, uh, that um, over the last year, we have spent time during Sunday school going through Dane Ortland's really popular book, um, Gentle and Lowly. And if you've read that book or been in the class, you know that his starting point is Matthew eleven twenty nine, And in, in that verse, Jesus says this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And as Ortland points out in the opening chapter of, uh, of his book, this is the only place where we hear Jesus open up his very heart. And it reveals that Jesus is tender and open 
that he's welcoming, he's accommodating, he's understanding, and he's willing. In fact, if we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, according to Ortland, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. And you know, I think he's right. And for those of us who struggle with seeing Jesus as distant and unapproachable, perhaps even severe, getting reacquainted with what he says about himself and about his own heart is a breath of fresh air. And yet, Ortland goes on in the same chapter to say this. Gentle and lowly is not who Jesus is to everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who come to him, who take his yoke upon them, who cry to him for help. Indeed, gentle and lowly does not mean mushy and frothy. And significantly for us, the fact that our Savior is not a mushy and frothy Savior, this is a central theme in the book of Revelation. And it's certainly true and evident in the passage that we're looking at this morning. You see, right from the opening verse, you see, uh, we see that Jesus is not introduced as a mushy and frothy Jesus. Instead, he's pictured as the one wielding a double-edged sword. And it raises the question for us, why would Jesus choose to present himself to the Pergamemes in this sort of militaristic way? And it raises another question for us as well. How do we relate this warrior-like image of Jesus with his own revelation of his heart, that he's gentle and lowly? You know, I think this is an especially important question for us to consider. You see, these two contrasting portraits of our Savior, Jesus as the approachable, the compassionate, the the welcoming burden carrier, and Jesus as the sword-wielding, fearsome warrior, these portraits create a sort of tension for us as his disciples. And so how do we navigate this tension? How are we to understand and to acknowledge and to respond to the fearful and legitimate power of our Savior without losing sight of his gentleness and mercy. Well, I think this letter to the Christians in Pergamum helps chart a clear path for us. The Christians in Pergamum needed to hear what the Lord had to say to them, and we do too. So what does he say? I'd like to start by uh, considering a bit of background to this church in Pergamum. You'll remember that uh, last week and the week before, we looked at his letter to the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna. And John's letter writing is taking a sort of circuitous route as he hits these major cities um, in the Roman province of Asia. And having already addressed the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna, he's turned his attention north about 70 miles to Pergamum. And the first century historian Pliny, he said this about the city of Pergamum. He said it was the most famous place in all of Asia. 
boasting beautiful architecture and a vibrant public life. And significantly for us, in the middle of the city, there was this towering acropolis, this mighty citadel, rising 1,300 feet above the floor of the valley below. And this citadel was adorned with all manner of temples to Roman gods and goddesses, like Zeus and Athena, as well as to um, the Caesars, Augustus, and to eternal Rome herself, which was also deified. And so this citadel, it didn't just provide fortification. It stood as a monument to the Pergamum's deep-seated commitment and dependence on the Roman Empire and to their fervent devotion to the Roman gods. And since this citadel would have been the most visible feature to the common folk living in the valley below, it also projected a constant warning. And the message was clear. All who walk these streets, beware. Rome and its gods are honored here. Neglect and dishonor them at your peril. And friends, it was in the shadow of this great monument to the wicked audacity of Rome that our brothers and sisters were living. And like the believers in Smyrna and Ephesus, they would have faced daily pressures to compromise their beliefs and practices and to join in the pagan rituals and emperor worship in order to open up economic opportunities, in order to avoid social ostracism, and especially to avoid government persecution, which was most feared. After all, everyone knew that the Roman authorities held the power of the sword, the famous Roman double-edged sword. And failure to honor the gods and emperors of Rome as expected could be considered a capital offense, punishable by death. And so I, I think it's not without a bit of mocking irony that we hear the ascended Lord Jesus drawing once again from John's earlier vision of the ascended Son of Man in Revelation 1. That he addresses the Christians in Pergamum in verse 1 as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's as if to say to them, brothers and sisters, let Rome posture. Let it flaunt Let it wield its infamous sword. It's but a child's toy. I'm the true and almighty sword wielder. And I'm a fearsome warrior. Fix your eyes on me alone. And listen to what I have to say to you. And friends, it's on the heels of this awesome self-description that Jesus turns in verse 13 to address them with his own intimate knowledge of their situation. But you know, unlike his addresses to the Christians in Ephesus and Smyrna, he doesn't tell them that he's aware of their works or of their status. Instead, he begins by telling the Pergamemes that he knows of all things where they live and that it's an awful place, the home of Satan's throne. Now, let's, let's just... Sit with that for a moment. I mean, if you're like me, there are places, even here in the States, where the, the names alone would cause you to rethink living there. 
you probably have something run, run, running in your mind right now. For example, like Accident Maryland. Do you want to risk it? <laughs> or, or what about Vulture City, Arizona? How about Hell, Michigan? <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, I grew up in Snellville, Georgia. And dealing with the annoying habit of outsiders who like to deliberately mispronounce it as Snailville was exhausting enough. <laughs> but friends, can you imagine? Can you imagine anything more disturbing as a Christian in the first century than living in a city known as the place where Satan's throne is? So what's going on here? Why does Jesus call it that? And why does he draw their attention to it? Well, there are a few features about the city itself that Jesus might be alluding to. For example, there was high atop the Acropolis, a 40-foot tall altar to Zeus, the supreme god of the Roman pantheon. Jesus could be referring to that as Satan's throne in a metaphor metaphorical sense. There was also a lesser known but still important sanctuary to Asclepius, he was the god, the Roman god of healing and salvation. And he had a pretty strong following in Pergamum. And interestingly, his symbol was the serpent. And so Jesus could be referring to that sanctuary as the throne of Satan in a similar way. On the other hand, Jesus could simply be making an allusion to the city's extreme religious devotion to the Roman emperor as a god. After all, it was the center of the emperor cult at the time in Asia. But really, these are just conjectures. They're interesting conjectures, but they're just conjectures. There's no scholarly consensus about the, the throne of Satan. And, you know, I think we have to keep in mind a major theme in the book of Revelation. That until the Lord returns in consummate glory to make all things new... Satan has set himself up as a counterfeit lord over the entirety of this world. It's not surprising then that until John's description of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the book, Revelation regularly pictures God's throne not on earth but in heaven. But in Revelation 13 and 16, we're told that Satan and his minions have set up a throne here on earth. And this is why the Apostle Paul can refer to Satan as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And so I think the New Testament scholar James Resicke's comments on this verse are really perceptive when he reminds us that Pergamum, as well as all other places here on earth, dwell where Satan's throne is. Now that being said, it does seem that the Christians in Pergamum were experiencing a particularly strong manifestation of Satan's counterfeit of kingdom. After all, Antipas, we don't know who Antipas is. This is all we know about him. But if you're interested in some historical fiction, the New Testament scholar Bruce Longnecker, a fantastic scholar, uh, it, 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 with his creative mind, he wrote a book called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. 
And if you're interested how Antipas could come into play, I strongly encourage you to read that book. It's fascinating. Anyway, um, we do know that he was put to death. He was the Lord's faithful witness. And so it seems likely that the Christians in Pergamum were being targeted and forced to deny the name of Christ or be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. And friends, this brings the situation our brothers and sisters in Pergamum were facing into sharp focus, doesn't it? I mean, imagine knowing personally someone within our own community who was made to face death simply because of his or her faith in the Lord Jesus. It would be devastating, but it would also be terrifying. I mean, in such a climate, fear for your own safety and that of your family could be overwhelming. And the temptation to compromise your commitment to Jesus and to conform to societal beliefs and practices, friends, this would be a daily experience. And this is exactly what the Pergamene Christians were facing. And yet, they were standing strong in the midst of it. And Jesus, the one who walks in the midst of his lampstands, in the midst of his churches, of course he was aware of it. And so in compassion and delight, we hear him draw their attention to it, to the awful and terrifying situation they were facing. And we hear him commend them for their faithfulness to him, saying to them, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. What precious, precious words to hear from the Savior in the midst of such perverse cruelty. What an encouragement they must have been to their wearied souls. Aren't these just the same words we would long to hear if faced with a similar thing? And yet as delighted as the Lord was in their faithfulness to him, as he continues to speak, we notice his tone change from commendation to rebuke. And we hear him say in the opening of verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You see, the Christians in Pergamum had faithfully endured the attack coming from outside, from the hostile pagan government around them. They were holding fast to Christ's name and not denying him before the authorities. But the same faithfulness could not be said of their response to the attacks coming from within their very own community. You see, some of them apparently were following in the ways of Balaam. You might remember from reading chapters 22 through 25 in the Old Testament book of Numbers that Balaam was a Gentile and a tool of the Moabite king Balak who hired him, promising him great honor and wealth to pronounce a curse on Israel, his enemy. You remember? And as he traveled, the text says, with perversity in his heart, the angel of the Lord stood in his way, sword in hand, and warned him not to go through with his wicked plans to curse Israel. And if that weren't enough to get his attention, in what has to be one of the most bizarre and funny episodes in all of the Old Testament, the Lord miraculously caused Balaam's own donkey to speak to him. And nevertheless, he continued on, 
with perversity in his heart. And when he came to Balak, the king of Moab, and he prepared to curse the Israelites, the Lord thwarted his plans and caused him to bless them instead three times. You'd think that would have stopped him. But because of his own greed for the reward Balak <clears throat> had promised him for cursing Israel, he was not dissuaded. And later in Numbers 25 and Numbers 31, we read that Balaam and Balak hatched a new plan to use the Moabite women to entice the Israelites to compromise their commitments to the Lord and to engage in fornication and especially to engage in idolatrous worship of the Moabite god Baal. And they were successful, if you remember the story. They were successful for a time, but only for a time, until the great Phineas, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, he took a spear and he skewered a Moabitess and an Israelite caught in flagrante delecto. They were caught in the act right in the temple. In the, in, the, in the tent of meeting. And he brought the plague to a close. And so for, for the early Christians, Balaam became a symbol of a false teacher who for love of money and the fear of man, rather than sincere devotion to the Lord, persuades believers to set aside their convictions and to enter into compromising relationships and idolatrous practices. And friends, this is what was going on in the church in Pergamum. Perhaps in a desperate attempt to avoid having to follow the faithful example of the martyr Antipas. False teachers instead were following the example of Balaam. They were peddling the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which by the way I think is just another way of referring to these same group of people. And if you're interested, you can ask me after that, afterward. But the, but the clear point is this. These false teachers were spiritual compromisers. And what's more, the church in Pergamum was harboring them. And having found a safe haven within the church itself, like Balaam, they were urging the believers in Pergamum to embrace compromise. That it was okay for them to both claim to the name of Christ and to participate at the same time in the idolatrous practices of the pagan culture all around them. But in doing so, like Balaam, they were actually placing a deadly stumbling block in their path, which would cause them to commit spiritual adultery against the Lord. And friends, this angered the Lord. It angered the one who wields the sharp, two-edged sword, and so in verse 16, we hear him call them to repentance. And we hear him warn them that if they failed to repent, then he would come against them with the sword of his mouth. Which is to say, they would suffer not only his righteous judgment in the present, whatever form that might take, but more than that, they would suffer the Lord's eternal judgment like all the unrepentant enemies of God who, as John tells us at the end of the book in Revelation 19.21, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And friends, Jesus' rebuke and warning to the Pergamemes should give us pause here and now. It should move us to reflect on the temptations and pressures we ourselves face to compromise with the alluring 
yet increasingly hostile world around us and to ask ourselves the hard questions. Is my commitment to the Lord exclusive? Or am I comfortable with, perhaps even eager, to draw on the world's current highest priorities, however contrary to the word of God, in order to shape who I am and what I do? Am I more interested in the comfort and security of myself, my family, and my friends than following Jesus no matter the cost? Do we as a community so prize the teachings of our Lord that we would not countenance anything contrary to it? Or are we like the Pergamums, failing to be vigilant and allowing compromising ideas to creep in and to be embraced, however subtly, that will lead us to be unfaithful to him? Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves these hard questions. The Lord demands our exclusive fidelity to him. Compromise is not an option. So how do we avoid it? How do we avoid falling into compromise? Well, you know, I think it's profoundly significant that in a letter tailor-made for the Pergamemes who were dealing with this question on a daily basis, I think it's significant that the Lord promises in verse 17 the gifts of manna and white stone and a new name. You see, it's significant that for Christians who were being urged to participate in pagan festivals and being offered the counterfeit food of false gods, the Lord instead offers the blessing of his own hidden manna, a description of his own flesh, the bread of heaven, given for our sustenance now, but fully enjoyed only when he comes again and is revealed in all his glory. And it's significant that for Christians who were being taught to compromise and to play the harlot against their husband, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus instead offers the blessing of a white stone, a precious token symbolizing an invitation not to participate in a promiscuous pagan party, but to attend the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb as his bride. And friends, it's significant that for Christians living where Satan's throne is, Satan, the counterfeit God of this world, who desires to claim souls for himself. And as John tells us in Revelation 13, he aims to mark them with his own wicked name. Friends, it's significant that Jesus instead offers the blessing of a new name, which although cryptic here, points ultimately to the very name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For John, at the end of his letter, speaking of the consummate blessings of paradise, he says in Revelation 22, 3 and 4, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, 
all these blessings the Lord offers here to the faithful are genuine. They're not Satan's counterfeit enticements. They're the real deal. And they're nothing less than his pledge of intimate fellowship with him, both now and consummately when he comes again. And so the way we avoid falling into compromise is by shutting our eyes and closing our ears to the allurement and false promises of the counterfeit God of this world and by attuning ourselves instead to our Savior, the ascended Son of Man, and by trusting in the rich and genuine blessings He alone can provide and that He promises to all those who put their faith in Him. Perhaps you're here today and this call to no compromise is overwhelming. You're sitting there, you're aware of your own weaknesses, and the image of Jesus wielding his sharpened sword fills you with fear rather than confirmation that he's gentle and lowly. Friends, there's a flip side to the Lord's sword that we as his followers desperately need to remember. You see, while the Lord surely brings judgment against the wicked by his sword, at the same time, he also brings vindication for his people. This is what the prophet Isaiah was getting at when using a similar metaphor. He said in Isaiah 11:4 that Jesus, the branch, would kill the wicked with the breath of his mouth, but decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are meek, who are not trusting in ourselves or in what the world offers, but putting our faith in the Lord alone, the image of his sword serves as a symbol of his stalwart defense of his people, that he's a mighty warrior on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, the, be the beauty of the gospel is that he's already secured the victory. Indeed, the lion of the tribe of Judah has already warred against his enemies and he's triumphed. And he's done that by selflessly taking their judgment as the slain lamb of God. And, and friends, today he freely offers for you to share in his victory by putting your faith in him. Will you come to him? Will you trust the one who says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, you who hold the sharp two-edged sword. For those whom you've called, for those who put their faith in you alone, trusting in nothing else, you are gentle and lowly. Father, thank you for that. And thank you for this word. We ask, Lord, that you'll use it in our lives this week. Shape us into the people you've called us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.